Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Uncommon Core. Today we have CMT Digital with us, one of the earliest family office investors into Bitcoin, as well as very active in the crypto venture space and crypto prop trading space. Uh, so super exciting to have you guys here, Brad and Matt. Just to start right off, I guess to just introduce yourselves and what you were doing before you were more active in crypto. Sure. So I have, a, I have a traditional trading background. So I, I began my career on the floor of the options exchange in Chicago, um, you know, for a traditional market making firm. So, you know, on, on the floor, verbally making markets and options and, and then sort of sort of that transition from open outcry to electronic trading before uh, coming over to CMT about 10 years ago, originally to trade options, then on the high frequency equity uh, and futures desk. From from that perspective, Bitcoin looked just like okay, this is going to be just like trading an index or gold or something like that. Um, so, so that really framed that early opinion. But I think like the first day on the desk, you realize that this is not the same thing. Um, and, and a lot of that might have to do with how early. Uh, we are in the life cycle where, you know, trading in traditional markets and trading in crypto is significantly different from an operational standpoint. But we're coming from that, from that base of knowledge of trading on the traditional side to coming over to crypto sort of maybe brought some, some bias and some, some things that you had to relearn to, to, do, to do well and to understand crypto. So I actually got involved with crypto from an investing standpoint before I started my professional career. I got involved when I was in college, but then right out of college, I was a, um, I was working for Vanguard and worked there for about six months before I quit and started working at CMT Digital. So I, I was pretty involved with it before I started my professional career. And given the quantity of time I was at Vanguard, never really had the assumption that blockchain could fix what I was working at at Vanguard, but I was also, you know, equally excited about the opportunity and I was spending all my free time researching outside of work at Vanguard. Um, Brett, you mentioned that you were active trading in Chicago uh, on the floor. So um, I guess for, for people who are now active in crypto and who like for who all their trading is entirely digital, can you describe how that experience was different from I guess how people trade today. Uh, yeah, so it, it was dramatically different. Um, I think one of the biggest things is just like how you how you got information and how you process information, right? There were there were screens on the floor, right, that were displaying prices. But when I first started, only one member of the pit, the designated market maker, was allowed to d display those prices. Eventually, other people could also display prices to add liquidity to that sort of electronic book as they moved from open outcry to electronic. But, um, you know, it was, it, it was, it was different in that everything was happening verbally. You actually saw the person. Um, it wasn't, uh, so there's a bit more of that sort of social dynamic that you lose a little bit from, um, you know, from trading electronically, whether that's, um, you know, completely electronically or, you know, via chat or like the, the, the phone broker market. Uh, but the other thing is, as sort of the industry progressed, 
the amount of information you can now use to make decisions, um, I think has is, is just grown exponentially where, um, you know, I now have multiple screens in front of me where my first days on the floor, you might have had something that was about the size of a tablet, but probably, you know, 10 times thicker to, to have some information at the palm of your hand, plus like the bigger screens on the floor. So I, I think the biggest difference there is just how you got information and what information you were using and just the ability to sort of pull in all these different data sets uh, to, to help inform decision-making and trading decisions. Would you say that this has made markets uh, more liquid? Definitely. Um, I, th I think before, I think it makes price discovery different, right? Where, where previously you would see, uh, you would see only see a market from the designated market maker for that product. Um, and then to get, to get a better market, you'd have to go to the floor and ask the, like maybe 15 or 20 guys on this, you know, the CBOE floor that were trading options in, in Google, um, to you know what what the market is for for larger size if you wanted to trade larger size or if you're trading S and P options you have to go to, into that pit, um, but but now a lot of that price discovery is done electronically because uh, the number of people providing markets, the number of market makers that are providing information real time uh, is, is significantly bigger. So you, so you can get that sort of price discovery for any t for any size trade much more conveniently. For me, it kind of surprised me how much crypto trading was still done by a voice when I started to get more active in our fund. Uh, just in terms of the brokers would execute on voice, a lot of the, the activity was still happening on an OTC basis. Um, and I guess one, one thing that struck me was, is there something fundamental about uh, negotiating block prices in a sort of intermediated way that's still incredibly attractive to, to clients and takers sort of in human nature? Or do you foresee sort of uh, DeFi and uh, different ways of trading, ultimately meaning that there will never again be a person speaking to a person to do a trade? When I, start my, when I started on the floor, one of the, uh, one of the older traders in the pit told me that I should go find another job because it was over, right? Like the industry yeah, was, was dying, exactly. um, right? And and the fact of the matter is that, I, I don't know, uh, over 18 years later, there are still people doing my job that I was doing that first day, right? It's just how it just looks different. And it's become a, a lot more electronic. I think really old habits die hard where uh, some people are still gonna prefer to have that relationship that sort of human contact to to process a trade to uh, you know to, to to get the price discovery um, but I do see it going more and more electronic um, but I do think that relationship there between who are, who are you trading with and how good is your relationship I think I think that has some dynamics at play here where um, you know speaking to them knowing who that is and having that sort of personal relationship, uh, probably makes people a little bit more comfortable when when trading, particularly in, in size. Uh, so I do think there will always be a little bit of that aspect, just for that little bit of, uh, you know, comfortability uh, and, and maybe a little bit of trust and from some people's standpoint is like to know who, who your counterparty is, to know who you're dealing with. 
uh, I think I think that's going to be hard to to completely get rid of. Uh, but I, I do see it continuing on the same trend of going more and more electronic. And I guess leading to you, Matt, uh, I know you focus a lot on DeFi these days. And um, what what sort of your thesis on what parts of DeFi are sort of overhyped and what parts are underrated? I think in its current form, what's potentially overhyped has to be, I think that um, liquidity mining in its current form is a bit unsustainable with the current um, with the current yields and just the amount of mass hype. And then what I think is underhyped is this idea of having a DeFi prime broker. So traditionally with decentralized systems, you know, be, the problem kind of ensues between traders, brokers, investors, and so on. And, you know, DeFi kind of flips these problems on its head by enabling instant settlement, uh, direct custody of your assets, and so on. So as these open financial primitives continue to develop and become an actual tangible idea, the uh, aggregated prime broker-like protocols, I think, will we'll, we'll see them emerge and kind of squeeze out these inefficiencies that you're seeing today in the DeFi space. And also kind of on top of that, financial markets become liquid under certain conditions, including having a clear, you know, clearing and settlement mechanism, risk infrastructure in the form of derivatives, and then um, demand and trading flow. And I mean, we're seeing that with DeFi right now with the emergence of protocols like Curve and Balancer, but also seeing assets like Kyber and Uniswap post remarkable trading volumes compared to historical ones. And I, I don't think that we've really seen the clearing and settlement really play out much in, a, in the uh, centralized exchange market to date. And I think that given that DeFi has this you know, instant settlement mechanism, I feel like it's a potential for DeFi to really tap into the centralized volume market share. Given that you have, uh, that you have a lot of experience in market making and traditional finance, what do you think about uh, automated market makers in, in DeFi, this new primitive, do you think they are here to stay? I, th I think that the, the automated market makers uh, are, are solving a, a major problem with, um, with these new markets, right? It's, it's hard to stand up a two-sided market where you need to have, you, you want to provide this service to a more, let's, let's say, retail customer, but that retail customer needs to interact against liquidity. Well, where does that liquidity come from? Um, you know, you, so, so this automated market maker is a really great way sort of to stand up liquidity and allow there to be, uh, you know, an active and more vibrant marketplace um, from day one, right? Where you don't need to sign up market makers and create a market making program and, and, and incentivize people uh, to make markets. You sort of, this automated market maker is that incentive to provide liquidity uh, and allow people to, to have a marketplace. Now, uh, I, I think that similarly to sort of the traditional markets where market making is done by firms or, you know, it's, it's mostly automated at this point on that side, it's just a, a different model uh, when there's more human interaction. Uh, there's still that issue of during moments of volatility, volume and liquidity dries up, right? Where 
th you know, there's issues with, with any liquidity model uh, from that front. So I do think you probably need a little bit of both, sort of the traditional market-making uh, style of liquidity providers. But I do think the, the automated market makers do help uh, sort of bring liquidity from day one and can help provide liquidity in moments where maybe, uh, you know, the traditional market participants aren't, aren't, aren't there with their, their, their liquidity. I guess my, my question is, so if you, you can translate any uh, constant function market making uh, also to like a discretionary strategy, right? That you could execute on, let's say, Binance or Bitfinex. And if you did that, you would get crushed by the other market makers who run like more adept strategies. So um, first off, I guess, would you agree with that? That if you translate a, an AMM or use an AMM strategy to run it on a centralized exchange that has like these way more advanced market makers that it would get crushed? And second, why does this not imply that AMMs will be crowded out by better market making strategies in DeFi as well? Well, I, I would agree that the constant function of market making would eventually get crushed because uh, people people would just figure out what that function is and they would game it, um, right? Or, or, or just a, a better model would um, would would crush it. Now, I would I, I agree that um, there there is some risk there, but I would also think that the AMMs will uh, evolve as well, right? Where um, similarly to traditional market makers is the first automated market making model or algos that traditional market making firms use were a lot simpler than they are today. I would think that over time, these AMMs will become more complicated and, and hopefully better um, so that they can continue to you know provide this liquidity service to the market. I guess, especially for uh, assets that have, that either well, that don't have a lot of volatility against each other or that have a strong tendency to like mean revert, such as stablecoin pairs. Would you say that those are like uh, constant function market makers are uh, probably even better than uh, discretionary strategies? Yeah, I, I, I would I would think that's it's definitely possible. I mean, it, it I think it depends on the, uh, the stablecoin. Um, you know, because some of them, it's at least theoretically possible that the peg is broken. Uh, and then what happens to that AMM uh, if the peg is broken? Right, but, it gets but, drained. But, yeah, ex exactly. So I, I do think that theoretically that's correct. Um, uh, and I do I would, would see them performing a lot better on, on the stablecoins um, markets today. But, you know, there's with, with anything like this, there's always, there's always that sort of tail risk where with the AMMs, it's imperative loss. Um, and, but but any market-making model is going to have some tail risk, either with the technology or with, uh, you know, the model with a, uh, you know, an event that wasn't, you know, built into that model. So there, there, there's risk with all of them. Uh, some of the risks are just harder to uh, imagine than others. And Matt, how about your take on AMMs or, I guess, which of the different AMM projects are, are, are you sort of most bullish on and which do you think are uh, possibly uh, in a struggle in the long term in terms of their model? 
it's kind of hard to for me to imagine the ones that are going to struggle long term when you're seeing the volumes that they're producing and they all seem to have a more or less a fairly similar structure to one another but in terms of ones that i'm particularly interested in i think uh, curve is, is a pretty interesting has a pretty interesting model with their bonding curve and what they're doing to kind of incentivize providing liquidity and I mean, yeah, you're, you're really seeing, if you look at the, you know, the daily user count, they're growing at a pretty exponential rate. And, you know, having incentives in the form of tokens, I think, is a, a super powerful way of bootstrapping liquidity. So in like Curve's case, you know, they've partnered with projects such as Synthetics and Ren and so on, where users are incentivized to post rep Bitcoin or other forms of synthetic Bitcoin to the platform as a way of accruing tokens in the native protocol. So I think that's a super powerful way of bootstrapping liquidity through tapping into users of other protocols to post assets on that platform to receive assets that they generally want. And I think that's a super powerful way of gaining adoption with these early assets. Yeah, it's been really impressive to see how much stablecoin to stablecoin volume has gone off ODC desks. And into DeFi, I was just speaking with one of the top desks the other day, and they're saying their clients are actually not trading stablecoin, stablecoin pairs anymore with them. They're they're going straight to Curve and just doing it uh, because for most sizes they get a better price that way, and it's and it's faster. I, I think it's uh, it's it's actually just in the past the few weeks, even it's, the growth has been insane. It's an interesting moment for DeFi when there's a protocol that's not actually just like more trustless or is not custodial, but is also cheaper. That's, yeah. I think, something that we have not seen before in any yeah. uh, blockchain application. Yeah. And of course, it is still subsidized by liquidity mining, uh, which is incentivizing the liquidity to be there. But if that liquidity stays there, at least the big chunk of it after the rewards end, then that, then that sort of will have made the dream a reality, right, in a way. So it's, uh, that's the question that people have. I guess switching tax a bit, where do you see centralized finance or CFI uh, being able to retain its its uh, dominance? I guess in terms of whether that's perp swap exchanges, whether that's spot exchanges, regulated exchanges. I noticed that CMT Digital made a lot of investments into the regulated trading space. Um, how do you see that playing out uh, given the growth in DeFi? The way that I personally see the centralized exchange outlook, particularly from a spot market background, is, is that they provide the day one landing zone for the user that has never heard of crypto or has never opened an account before. So I think there is, in its current implementation, an absolute use case for the spot exchanges with these users. And as you've, as you've seen, historically, the pairs the, the uh, dollar pairs that trade on Coinbase tend to trade at a premium. There are a couple of reasons for that that I think. One one being that um, just due to uh, the withdrawal cap on Coinbase with people trying to arbit. But then I think another reason too is that they've been so effective with their mobile app in gaining user interest and adoption that People tend to, you know, pile in to Coinbase through their app, which is effectively just market buying the asset, which drives up the price. And which is why I think you see 
especially during um, periods of volatility and when, when assets are listed on Coinbase, you see them tend to trade at pretty large premiums to other exchanges such as Binance and Bitstamp and whatnot. So I, I do think there's an absolute use case for the user that doesn't really understand crypto or have crypto exposure and is interested in using centralized exchanges. You know, there's a spectrum of users. And if, you, if you're taking your first step into crypto, the centralized exchange or centralized finance in crypto is going to look and feel a lot like what you're used to from your from the traditional finance side, right? Where, um, you know, having someone go from, you know, sort of the traditional financial markets to have their first step into crypto to be in a non-custodial decentralized finance uh, way, I, I think you're not going to find a lot of people that are going to be comfortable taking that big of a step where, you know, that, that first step will probably often be with something that looks and feels similar to what they know from, you know, the rest of their world. And, and that as they learn more, hopefully they sort of take those steps towards the, uh, the decentralized model when it makes sense for them. I guess that brings up an interesting question, which is value accrual long-term for some of these spot exchanges, because as we've seen from the recent Coinbase IPO filing and, and some of their data, which is that volume is down 50% since 2017. Now, obviously, 2017 was a big year, but um, it's it kind of does raise the question, which I often ask myself, is how, how will people ultimately want to trade in very regulated environments where Coinbase is handing info to the IRS or they're giving uh, fees that are probably higher than they can get in DeFi in the long term? Is it sort of a question that's that's a bit provocative obviously but uh it 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 does make me wonder because if it's just the single fiat on ramp initially then the guy has to do one trade right he's literally depositing dollars into his bank then moving from his bank to the exchange and then he buys some coin or even usdc and now he's in DeFi forever or he's on a unregulated exchange uh like a binance uh or he's on bitmex uh do you see that kind of trend turning around or is that something that is very hard for these very regulated players to stop? I, I do think that it, that the debt trend will continue, you know, it, it, one from a competition standpoint, these centralized exchanges have to compete across, you know, multiple boundaries, I guess, right. Well, they're not just competing with other centralized regulated exchanges they are competing with the unregulated exchanges are competing with DeFi they are competing with, you know, low to no KYC. Um, I, I do think that there will, there will, for the, you know, short term to medium term, there are, there are going to be participants that either can only participate uh, with a regulated exchange uh, or would or prefer to only participate with the regulated exchange. Um, but I think that just speaks to how, how early we still are in this, in, in building this ecosystem where, um, you know, some some people's perception of uh, non-custodial, unregulated um, exchanges is, is, is I think going to change over time. Um, but I, but like as as you pointed out, um, you know, usually you had to maybe pay a premium to do the decentralized version, and and that seems to be shrinking. Where that like the cost to do it 
in a non-custodial or decentralized way is is, is shrinking compared to centralized. Um, so there's it's creating competition sort of across the whole ecosystem, not just centralized versus centralized. Like DeFi is now competing with the centralized side. Um, but I do th I do think it'll take a long time for some people to uh, to to move away from that centralized model. So I saw that you are a founding member of the what's called the DeFi Alliance. Can you tell me what that is? I would say over the last year or so, uh, CMT Digital in general has been uh, working sort of closely with Imran Khan, who uh, is from Token Daily and Bolt Capital. Um, and basically through Imran's dealings with some of the you know newer uh, sort of DeFi protocols or, uh, or, or dApps, sort of saw this gap in the market where um, you know they're trying to either stand up a market or they're trying to take their market to the next level and they were trying to get connected to more traditional or larger trading firms right Imran's based here uh, based in Chicago as are we um, and as are a, a bunch of trading firms Chicago's a pretty big trading town so he sort of saw this gap where you know listen we Everyone could, could potentially benefit here, where we can introduce some of these early stage uh, DeFi protocols to traditional larger trading firms, <clears throat> as long as there's you know interest on both sides, right? Where are these trading firms interested in learning more, um, and and are these protocols interested in at least you know finding out what might move the needle for them? So it sort of just started out as a way to bridge the gap and open lines of communication between. Uh, you know these two different parties, uh, and you know I would say that through the first cohort, uh, there's been a lot of interest on both sides. A lot of interest in you know larger firms in crypto or even traditional firms that just want to learn more about DeFi, um, and, and a lot of interest from the DeFi protocols in terms of they just want to engage. It's like it's a it's a great way I think for them to to get some feedback to have some some large group discussions or one-on-one -on -one conversations with some, some traditional players uh, or some, some larger players in the crypto space just to get some feedback and maybe iterate on their products, maybe think about their roadmap differently. Um, so I, I think it's been great learning experience on all sides for, for everyone to become more familiar with each other and hopefully find ways to work uh, together to move the, the ecosystem forward. Is the idea that the uh, traditional trading firms would also take a look at maybe making market making markets uh, in these new DeFi protocols? Yeah, so so I think there has been uh, an uptick engagement between traditional firms. I know that here at, at CMT Digital, you know, uh, prior to the uh, the DeFi Alliance, we uh, you know we we had dipped our toe a little bit in in DeFi, right? Where we we knew a little bit about, you know, uh, a little bit about a lot of things in DeFi, right? But we hadn't really taken a deeper dive to, to really learn a lot about one given protocol or platform. Um, but we definitely are engaging more now than we were prior to the, to the you know, Chicago DeFi Alliance. And I, I think that same thing would, would ring true for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the firms that participated. Is that they they got to meet the teams, they got to learn more, they got to ask more in-depth questions. They really it's it's really about education, I think, from from our side, 
right, is that um, before we deploy a significant amount of capital to any one strategy or platform, you know, there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. And some of that is learning by doing, right, where uh, until, until you start engaging, you might not realize all of the risks or all of the operational hurdles that go along with it. So we're definitely in the process of educating ourselves as we become more active in the space. Yeah, one thing we've noticed uh, as well at Three Arrows, uh, we're, we're part of the DeFi Alliance uh, in the first cohort and had some really great experiences talking to some of the DeFi teams, uh, is that I think HFT or I guess principal trading more broadly, uh, they, they kind of see DeFi as a way to uh, reinvent the, the, the rails that finance happens on because Traditionally, right, if you're, if you're a prop firm, you're used to having a clearing broker, having to negotiate comms with them, having to talk about post-margin, pre-margin, collateral, margin calls, and you're always intermediated by someone bigger, right, or by someone incumbent that, can't po- that you can't possibly be that person because you're not regulated in that way or you're not that way. And conversely, with, uh, with flow information as well, right, where if you're not an investment bank, you don't get to flow that uh, they do. So you have to always play sort of in a different space. And I've, I've noticed, at least out here in Singapore, among prop trading family offices and among former HFT traders, th- there's a tremendous amount of interest in DeFi because they see it as a way for the trading firms to interact with the client flow directly and to give them a better price to interact with that natively. Is that something that you're seeing in Chicago as well? Do you think that kind of thesis is, is ultimately uh, sound? Uh, I do. I mean, I think, I think one, uh, there's definitely some uh, opportunity there. And, and I, I think that uh, the interesting thing is that people are starting to realize that both sides probably have something that they can learn from the other side, right? Where decentralized finance, um, if, if, you're, if you think that centralized finance has it all figured out and there's nothing left to improve or nothing left to learn, then I think that's very short-sighted, right? Is, is that I, I think that some of the, some of these solutions that DeFi is, is, uh, is, is solving for or trying to solve for are very elegant and can be, and can improve how finance is done globally. Right. So I, I definitely agree that looking at some of these things in DeFi, it, it, it changes the game a little bit. And, and because it's, it's because it's not the same and because you have to, you have to think about how it works and maybe figure a few things out for yourself, that also creates an opportunity. So um, I, I think both of those are, are leading to a lot of eyes on, on DeFi right now. Another key catalyst for this interest, I think in today's DeFi market has to do with the price accrual, really with any asset class, any asset that has the amount of price appreciation that these DeFi tokens have had, it's going to lead to more interest, more eyes on it, especially with how the rest of the crypto market has been trading lately. And the fact that we've been in this insanely brutal bear market for the last like year or two, having a tangible use case emerge in the form of these DeFi tokens where you can actually use the platform and then seeing the price accrual. So there's benefit to the user of the platforms as well as the token holders of the platform. I think, I mean, for the most part, 
they're the same person. You invest in the price increase, you get interest, and then you use the platform. You like it. Word of mouth advertising increases, which is a super you know powerful way of getting user adoption at low cost, not just in DeFi, but really in any area of the market for that reason. So yeah, and and in another like you know byproduct of this price accrual and interest increase in DeFi has to do with community, in my opinion. A question that I ask myself is, you know, if assets like Synthetics and Chainlink had a price graph that, you know, the high point is the secondary market listing price, and now it's trading at, you know, like a 90 to 95% discount to that price, would Link Marines and SNX Spartans exist? And I would probably argue, no, they would not. But the fact that there's a use case for this, it could be tangible, it could not be tangible. Just having price accrual with a theoretical or legitimate use case creates community, which creates interest as well through the rest of the market. And I mean, I, I think as you've seen, you know, people that brand themselves on Twitter with the .eth or maybe they have link in their profile are getting a lot of users because they are, you know, heavily prop, they're heavily um, advocating for the use of these assets and people see the price increase and they think, you know, gosh, I got to get into this thing as quick as I can, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really good point with uh, how the viral, the virality of the growth has also been linked to the price movements and how it's important that the projects are able to sustain a long-term uptrend, right? I guess tying with that is how the VC-backed projects like Maker and Compound to a lesser extent, their price charts are have, have generally struggled. And we talked about in a previous podcast how VCs, they're, they're generally incentivized to have things marked very high and then to have a very long vesting, right? Where then they can show new investors that they've already printed these gains, they're therefore invest in my new fund, whereas the, the DeFi products that have done the best recently have been all these uh, very grassroots ones where the price has been uh, has started low and then grown over time. Uh, do you think there's a way for these VC-backed ones to ultimately become more grassroots? Or is sort of the conception already so messed up that they can't recover from it? In general, I don't think that the, that they're it's, unreco- it's unrecoverable, right? I think that they definitely can. Because I, I think we're seeing... Uh, I think I think we've seen that a little bit this year too, where some of these protocols that have been out for a while, VC backed or not, um, you know, they came out and they and like nothing really happened, right? They went from testnet to mainnet, but then like they sort of went quiet for a while. But as as time goes on and they get to either you know, build on top of it or release version 2.0, or you, you start to see. Um, you start to see some things change, um, you know, they do have a chance to still hit that growth curve later on. It is amazing to see some of these sort of build in this incentive model day one and have that incentive model really resonate with people. And, and like from day one, they did, they hit that growth curve, they hit the ground running. Um, but I, I think the reality is that for most people, it's going to be hard to find that sort of, so to borrow one of the VC phrases, that product market fit uh, from the beginning and that having to iterate on your product um, is, is going to be necessary. 
to, to, to find that longer term sustainable growth. So what do you think in general about the future of venture capital and crypto? Because the way I see it, um, of course, when you do venture investing, you want to make bets that ultimately pay off. So you, you invest in a project early and then you hope that it can make a lot of revenue. Not just that it can make a lot of revenue down the line, but also that you can capture large amounts of that revenue. But that's what I see really, where I'm really skeptical, I guess, in crypto, just because of how all the projects are open source and can be forked uh, to remove uh, basically any rent that goes to these projects. I mean, this, of course, can be sort of balanced with like when the project has a lot of network effect, then it's not always very easy to fork it because there, there's, in the case of Maker, for example, a fork of Maker would not have any of the collateral locked up and not have any of the die in circulation. But then for some of the other projects, they don't have this network effect. Yeah, I, th I think you're right on the Maker side where like having that network sort of creates that sort of moat where it's hard to compete with because you need to build up that, that, that network effect to make the, uh, the protocol useful to its users, right? So, um, but I, I also think that from the, from the venture side, uh, it might just, there, there might just be some segments of the ecosystem that maybe aren't venture friendly where, um, where, yeah, the, the whole point of that, of that venture is, is to, to, to find, the investments that will accrue value to the equity or, or, or the token, if, if that's what you're investing in over, over time. But with some of these new sort of decentralized models where, uh, you know, the, the value accrues to a token holder without that presale, it, it's, it's hard to make that, that early stage investment or at least playing the, the playing field sort of leveled where anyone can invest and not just, you know, uh, you know, the venture crowd. So I, I think that there's still going to be a lot of room for venture investment in sort of the broader crypto. I just think there might be some segments that are less venture friendly than others. And I think that a key catalyst to the recent shift from VC subsidized tokens to community subsidized tokens has been the recent introduction of listing assets on DEXs such as Uniswap. And I mean, I, I would agree with the notion that, you know, the first ones were, you know, a bit rough. Like the, I think UMA was the first one and, you know, there are, there are no cells for the first like three minutes of that listing and it traded up to like 186%, more than 3,700 ETH were allocated before the first cell. And I mean, you saw like the thing trade at a very sharp price increase and, you know, it's kind of like a uh, sidestep. Um, I feel like a big reason for that is, you know, there's no OHLC graph on Uniswap. You don't have a dollar rate. All you can see really on the front end is, you know, an ETH rate. And then there's no trade history. So you, you can't really see that the quantities that trade easily in for what price people are lifting and hitting at. So I think that's like a pretty big catalyst for why you see these insane insanely large price increases on these initial Uniswap offerings initially. But I, I do think that, you know, the introduction of these things and listing assets on a DEX 
to achieve secondary market liquidity is going to play a pretty significant role in shifting how community are allocated assets first before these big VC players can. Yeah, I think it's just I think it's just interesting. Yeah, sorry, someone had one more thing, but I think I do think it's interesting that this has basically created a competitive model to like the the VC funded um, you know startup ecosystem where now now maybe you can create something without having to go out and get that VC funding, which uh, which I think is really interesting to, to to think about is that you can you're sort of you're turning how companies are founded. Uh, you're creating a new way to found a company, a new way to get backing that it doesn't rely on these sort of uh, these gatekeepers that that hold all the hold the that you know the hold the money that that you that firms are usually out seeking to raise from venture capital investors, right? It gives gives people another option, which I think is going to be good in the long run. Yeah, and it was interesting to see that in Wi-Fi, they uh, they actually voted to give the founder some allocation of emissions possibly in the future. So there's a lot of design space there where if someone's good at coding and they have a really good idea for a project and they can, can sort of let a fire in the community, then that, that process can happen a lot more organically than people originally thought was possible in crypto. People thought you had to, you had to go through, like you said, the gatekeepers and you had to present to them and sell tokens to them at certain prices. And, and uh, that, that sort of model has, has uh, sort of finally been been uh, been overthrown in some ways, I think, with the recent uh, actions in DeFi. Uh, what do you guys think about about Bitcoin versus Ethereum? Then, I guess, just to change tack a little bit. Obviously, for the past couple of years in this bear market, has been a very Bitcoin high, high dominance market. In the past few in the past few months, we've seen a resurgence in Ethereum and interest in Ethereum. Do you see? Do you see? First of all, do you see Bitcoin as ever going toward more of a scripting uh, focus with being able to add some functionality, uh, add more functionality, or do you see it uh, hardening as digital gold? And uh, how do you view Bitcoin on Ethereum as well, that, that, that concept? I think that the growth in Bitcoin is definitely going to come from sort of that second layer, right, where uh, people are going to build sort of on, on top of it. And, and from like sort of the, the Bitcoin versus Ethereum on a, on a higher level uh, like viewpoints, I think, it's, I think it's interesting that a lot of people seem that they, they feel like they have to pick one or the other. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I, think it's, I think it's way too early to declare a winner, but I, I, do, I do see a world where there's going to be more than one winner here. Uh, and and, if, and it could be Ethereum and Bitcoin, um, but they are taking sort of different different paths, and they're going to provide different sort of services and use cases, right? Where may, maybe it is that you know Bitcoin is the um, you know the 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 digital gold, and it's it's more of an investable asset where you know Ethereum provides value to users in a different way than Bitcoin does, and I, I think that's I think that's that's fine, and I don't, I don't see any issues there. But then I think the last question was, was on Bitcoin, Bitcoin on Ethereum through like wrapped BTC or, or any of the other variations. Uh, and I, I think that is really interesting, just from a liquidity standpoint. So you look at markets in general, uh, a lot of liquidity in crypto markets is in Bitcoin, 
So if you can import that liquidity over to some of these, uh, you know, Ethereum markets, how does how does that impact the growth of these markets and at the speed at which they they grow and gain adoption? I think that's a really interesting to think about. That you know that if you could use uh, you import your Bitcoin and use that liquidity uh, in, in DeFi, uh, I think that could help hit like another growth curve uh, in, in DeFi, which would be which would be cool to see. Thanks for the conversation, and uh, and thanks for listening.